It's time for the big show with Andy Gallo and Country Jim. Welcome to another podcast of the big show, and uh, welcome to you, Country Jim. How are you doing over there, buddy? Man, I'm enjoying my cup of coffee here in the Houston area. It's a little on the brisk side, not real cold. Yeah, not too bad. But, uh, I think it's supposed to get up to 65 today, maybe, or something, uh, something like, like that. And it may be 65 out there now. I don't know. I haven't been out in a while, though. So who are we interviewing Well, we today? want to welcome our guest on the big show. Our episode is with uh, Thad Maxwell. Thad, uh, of course, played with... Uh, a lot of musical icons, uh, Linda Ronstadt, one of them, and so many more that we're going to be talking about uh, during the episode here. And Thad, just welcome to you, sir. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be on. You know, we like to like to talk. We we, we always start off the show with with our guests, and we have a a question that Country Jim always loves to um, to ask our guest. And so I'm going to throw it over to him now and let him ask that first question that he he always asks every guest. Go ahead, Country Jim. Well, there's a built-in assumption. Our assumption with Thad Maxwell is that uh, we assume that he started out as a child like most everybody else. <laughs> Hope so. That is pretty much pretty much true, as far as I recall. It was a, way, a ways back. <laughs> how, about, uh, how about your folks? Uh, did, was your dad a guitar player or et cetera? Uh, no, no, dad, uh, dad had uh, kind of a, a tenure and, uh, and was not much of a singer, but he was loud in church. I'll tell you that. And, uh, <laughs> my, my mom was the church organist. And so I started, I started musically, uh, singing in the church choir. Oh, okay. And, awesome. uh, yeah. and, and then on Sundays we'd get done with church and I'd go home. This was about probably 1955 ish. And I'd go home and change, get upstairs into my room and change out of my suit and, uh, turn on my radio and, the uh, Top 50 would, would start playing, and I'd spend the, pretty much the rest of the afternoon up there listening to the Top 50. Wow. This, well, was, in, this was in West, western New York, and so we got quite a mixture in the 50s musically. Um, when, you, when I say I'm from New York, you wouldn't expect me to have much country roots, but, but it was very much country. Mm-hmm. And uh, the playlist then would be a mixture of Patsy Cline and Webb Pierce and, wow. and then, uh, you know, uh, Vaughn Monroe and all the mm-hmm. But eventually, Elvis came along, and, and oh, yeah. that's what did it. Yeah, you know, I, and we were, and we're going to, we got a, a few songs that we're going to play from a group that you were with back uh, in the early seventies. Uh, we're going to play something here in just a little bit from the uh, Swamp Water. But and you're talking about country now. But as I listen to Swamp Water. And Jim and I, we had like a little discussion about that. He says, oh, no, 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 that's Cajun. I said, well, it's got to be Cajun rock and roll then because it's, it reminds me so much of listening to maybe like CCR or uh, maybe some Eagles back in that time. It definitely has that, that 70s rock group uh, sound. Uh, maybe elaborate right. a little bit on that. Well, sure. Uh, I got lucky, I believe, in, in my timing when I went to California uh, – I had tried uh, I had tried a few other routes, uh, Woodstock and Nashville as a musician, and none of those really panned out, and uh, L.A. was going to be my last stop. And I got lucky in that when I landed there, the, uh, the, 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 the combination of influx of people and sounds was creating that country rock thing, was just getting started. Mm-hmm. Rick Nelson had decided to, uh, to get the Stone Canyon Band, and he started playing country. Got uh, Tom Brumley on pedal steel to aid that. Um, uh, guys like groups like Poco were starting the flying burrito brothers had just started. Um, uh, and I happened to land there at, at the time, all of that 
country infusion was coming mm-hmm. and uh, mixing with rock and roll. The birds actually, I think, are the ones that should get the credit for getting it started with mm-hmm. the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album. Yep. And uh, we, uh, I just, you know, I just kind of got uh, uh, immersed in it and and joined in and went with the flow. Hence, uh, I ended up in the Swamp Water Band and. We got a job backing up Linda Ronstadt. Uh, Swamp Order was definitely Cajun rock. Uh, Gib, our lead singer, uh, was a Cajun fiddle player from Opelousas. And, uh, and that was what set us apart from the other country, uh, country rock bands that were mm-hmm. trying to get started. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had that Cajun fiddle thing, that sawing, driving beat thing going. Mm-hmm. And then we added the birds-like harmonies because we loved the birds. Oh, yeah. It's definitely got a great sound to it. I, I, I would, Thank you. Thank I, you so much. I had really never heard of Swamp Water until Country Jim told me to look it up, and so we knew that we, you were going to be on the uh, on the show with us. And so I looked it up, and I'm going, "Man, this is this is some great stuff," you know. Uh, <laughs> but you know, and I guess I probably had heard it, but didn't know the name of it because I was a big right, Ronstadt right. fan, you know, back when I was growing up in the '60s and '70s, you know. So. Yeah, uh, probably heard it, just didn't know what I was listening to, you know. <laughs> right, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. You know, the the word segue is uh, kind of popular nowadays. And uh, you and I were having a discussion, and I told you about an interview that we did with Barry Pollock, and he told a story right. about him being with Capitol Records and uh, their Capitol's annual blowout uh, artist uh deals uh was in honolulu and uh vp gave him a wad of money and said to go and uh down to the police station to solve the problem of them being in trouble linda ronstadt and the band for uh, some (laughs) hot hot tickets that they had inadvertently purchased and uh that was a wonderful story. Yeah. And then as I was telling you that story, you told me that you joined the band, I think you said the next week. Absolutely. I, I had already auditioned and got the gig and, uh, but they had, they had already booked the tickets and everything. And the other bass player was going to be making that his last, his last gig. So I missed that trip and, uh, glad I did. Yeah, really. <laughs> and, and man, that's a great baseline. Uh, and that's coming from a guy like me who doesn't know anything about bass, really. But I, lo- I, loved, I love the bass work on Swampwater, dude. Yeah, it is good. Well, thank you. And let, let me, that, I guess I got to confess a, a story on that. I had a friend who was playing with Ronstadt before Swampwater was started. And uh, he got me to come and audition uh, maybe two or three months before that time for Linda as a drummer because the drums were my main instrument when I got to California. I went to the audition and uh, I, I didn't get the audition. And uh, three months later, my friend John says, listen, we got to get a new bass player and uh, you got to come audition. I said, John, I never played bass. He says, you play guitar. It's only four strings. So you can do it. <laughs> so I had a week to listen to her record and, and learn to play the instrument at the same time and then audition. And I got the gig. So, wow. so tell me that uh, Hollywood can, can be full of it at times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I was, that was definitely on the job learning for me. That sure was. So, yeah. you know, probably the essence of, of why I might've been doing things well on the base is because I kept it so simple because that's all I could do. Mm. Yeah. And that's what she liked about it. Yeah. But, you know, I think of the bass as being your third instrument. I, I, 
I, um, I, I have a, a close affinity and love for pedal steel guitar. And I know that uh, you talked about uh, Brumley uh, playing pedal steel for Ricky Nelson, but didn't Brumley replace you on the pedal, pedal steel? Oh, no, no, no. Um, I didn't play pedal steel with uh, any of the bands until, uh, oh, I would say 1971 or two. And when I was, we were touring with Arlo Guthrie, Swampwater was, we were opening for Arlo and then we were his backup band. Mm-hmm. And I was just playing the pedal steel at home for fun. And uh, one day Arlo says, uh, hey, you good enough on that thing to play some songs? I said, mm, I think so. Just kind of like saying, yeah, I can play bass for, for Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> and it's, it's like the old, the old Hollywood actor's trick, right? Mm-hmm. They say, can you ride a horse? And they say, sure. Yep. And then uh, before they get to part, they start you know, taking riding lessons. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I didn't play the pedal steel uh, with Rick. I played bass, bass with Rick Nelson, and okay. Tom was the pedal steel player. Right. Okay, good. So how much guitar did you play back in then? Anything at all? Um, well, let's see. You know, it kind of depends on when we're talking about. Um, when I joined uh, Arlo, um, I played bass and guitar. Uh, on some songs, I'd switch to guitar. Okay. And then eventually we added the pedal steel. And then when I got with Mac Davis, uh, which would have been about 1974, uh, I was playing uh, a guitar and, and uh, pedal steel. Yeah. Were you on the Mac Davis show when they when they were doing that show, filming that, or was yes, that? Yes, sir. Every single one of them. Yep. Wow. Okay. Okay. Now, there's rumor that you were on the Carson show a few times. Is that is that correct? <laughs> yeah, there is. That's a, that rumor is accurate. Um, the funny thing about that, um, one time I was telling Mac Davis uh, years into our career together, I was telling him about uh, when I was in high school, I had a, I took a class in music appreciation. And uh, the, the teacher lady, um, eventually she sent a, a letter to the principal and to my parents saying she wanted me out of the class because I had no aptitude for music. Oh, wow. And uh, Max says, are you kidding me? He says, did you tell her, tell her that you played on The Tonight Show over 40 times? <laughs> I said, I did. And Max says, sure, we've been doing this five, six, seven times a year for 10 years. And I went, oh, yeah, I guess so. Plus, I, you know, I could have told her I played on uh, played Carnegie Hall a couple of times too. But people have often said I should have should have written and sent. But I just I kind of was above it, you know. I didn't want to mm-hmm. go back down and you know in, in in the muck and mire of getting revenge or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was uh, uh, Carnegie Hall with? Was that with Davis? That was with Arlo Arlo Guthrie. Ah, that makes okay. sense. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I, and. Go ahead. I was just going to say, just to fill in the blank, you'd mentioned the Eagles and all those other groups that were going on at that time in Southern Cal. Um, the the way things uh, broke shook, shook out for us is uh, when we were touring with Linda. Uh, one time, she said, "Guys, I've I've, I've got to take you off retainer because I'm going to take a three month break, and I can't afford to keep paying you, but I hope you'll be be here when I get back from my vacation." She was going to go traveling, mm. and we said, "Well, we hope so too." And uh, but. Here it was, Christmas was coming, we're all of a sudden out of work, and uh, a week later, Arlo Guthrie calls and says, hey, what are you guys doing? <laughs> we said, uh, not a thing, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we'd opened for him with Linda a few gigs, mm. and he liked us. He liked the uh, the fact that we had that rock and roll flavor, but with the country uh, and the fiddle and all, all of that, so yeah. 
so we went out with him and uh and while when when linda came back you know we were already busy booked with erlo so she had to scramble around and find some musicians to to start up her next tour right and so she managed to get a hold of uh of a guy named glenn fry and uh and uh and a couple other guys uh, yeah. uh, that, that were the beginning stages. Uh, Randy Meisner was involved. Beginning mm-hmm. stages of the Eagles. Wow. And so I like to tell people that uh, we left uh, Linda high and dry, but uh, she did okay because she got the Eagles to replace us. Wow, that's some, and that's when she renamed the band, right? I guess. Um, I, I th- I'm not sure. I think that they. I don't know. I don't know if she named it. I thought that they made, did, they, did that themselves. I know okay. in Hollywood, a lot of people were running around calling them the Eagles instead of the Eagles. Okay. Well, I was, I was cons- because I- it, they didn't, they didn't get along all that well with each other, but sorry, okay. go ahead. Okay. No, well, I was just talking about wasn't her original band uh, or once she got into the seventies and started producing hits, the band wasn't it like the stone ponies or something like that, or uh, no, actually no? the stone ponies came before swamp water. Oh, she, she, Okay. The Stone Ponies were kind of a folk, a folk trio or quartet. I got you. <clears throat> and okay. they had uh, her her song that was their song that was a hit was uh, "You and I Travel to the Beat of a Different Drum." Oh, okay. So okay. So when she left, she left them and went out as a solo artist, and then we became her first band. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, it really is. You were part of uh, you and Gib Gilbo. Y'all did a, a composition for a movie. Uh, oh, yeah, you did some big, digging, didn't Big you? Bertha, I think it was. Wasn't it? Is that the name of the movie? Is that, did I get it right? Close. Uh, Boxcar Bertha. Boxcar. Boxcar Bertha. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. 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 A little bit about that was, uh, what was the deal on that now? That, well, we were, uh, Lynn's manager, Herb Cohen, even though we were not working with her, he was still managing Swampwater. And uh, he had been contacted by uh, Roger Corman, the film producer. Um, and he had a uh, had a new director coming out of college in New York City named Martin Scorsese, and he's having him direct this film called his first film out of college um, called Boxcar Bertha, and they wanted some sort of period kind of uh, fiddle and acoustic guitar country music because the setting was in the rural South, uh, uh, railroads and, and so on in the days of the uh, railroad union being formed, and. Uh, so we, uh, so uh, Herb Cohen got us the job uh, doing that, and uh, the royalties still come in as they uh, keep showing that movie over and over again. My wife always says, "Why didn't I score more films?" That was great. I said, "Well, I uh, they didn't call me that much, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to have scored more for. I'd love to have scored Raging Bull or something like that." <laughs> yeah. Man, there's there's no uh, more enjoyable gift than mailbox money. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really interested in the uh, Nashville West sound, um, and I'm very interested also in the Arlo Guthrie thing. Uh, you said to me one time that uh, it was an entirely different world playing with Guthrie, um, and as I understood, the, the contrast you were making was between playing uh, quasi-rock and roll and that being a crowd you know, that's uh, making some kind of uh, raising their hand up in the air with a couple of fingers up and hollering. And on the other hand, someone like Arlo, who, uh, as a true son of Woody Guthrie, was uh, was into trying to influence people through his songs. 
socially, politically. Was that, what was that like, that change from going from one, one uh, style to another? Well, uh, yeah, it was. It, it was kind of an awakening for, for me. Uh, I, I felt prior to that that <clears throat> all we were doing was out there playing rock and roll or country rock, having a good time and, and getting paid for it. But we weren't really doing anything, you know, to further things in the planet, let's say. Yes. You know, the betterment of mankind in, in any way. Now, people argue that entertainment is valuable, and, and I, I certainly would not disagree with that. Yes. But when I started touring with Arlo and we did some of the, some, a lot of the shows we did, uh, Pete Seeger joined us. And although I may not have always agreed with some of the politics involved, I certainly agreed with the idea of putting forth a, uh, a social message to try to, uh, to, to let people see that there was, uh, that there was value in, in philosophy behind the music that could be, that could spread, uh, and, you know, hopefully even induce, uh, kindness and way people interact with each other and respect, mutual respect, that kind of a thing. You can yes. get that out of some people's music. And I, I, I saw that coming from Arlo and then I started listening to Woody Guthrie's songs and, and I, and I really, really saw music in a whole different light at that point. Wow. And what year would that have been? Um, 71, 72. I, uh, we were kind of Jim and I were talking a little bit about, you know, the, like, like the political, the social, things that they they talked about in music back in those days. And of course, Bob Dylan was a big part of that as well. And uh, I guess so many other artists and writers, uh, you know, they wrote about the times that people were going through. You know, the Vietnam War was going on still. Uh, So many other things were happening. It was a very politically charged uh, atmosphere. The writing was, uh, I guess, like today, that we've talked to a lot of people that do writing. And we asked the question is, well, you know, where did you get the uh, inspiration for that song? Uh, and so we kind of know where that inspiration came from. Like, like you said, though, it's just uh, uh, it's the social and the political era of the time. You know, so, I've got a right. I've got an illustration of that. Uh, Woody Guthrie saw an article in the paper about uh, a California. Uh, sending some farm migrant workers back to Mexico and they were put on a plane and the plane crashed and everyone on the plane died. And the newspaper article that Woody was reading said they were just deportees. Right. And, uh, and Woody wrote, he wrote a song deportees. It's been covered by, um, Emmy Lou Harris. Oh my goodness, the list is long. And uh, of course, yeah. Arlo. The birds, the birds did it too. The birds, the birds did, did it too. Birds. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And Arlo uh, played it on his live shows. Oh yes, yeah, sure did. Wow. And uh, it gave me goosebumps uh, then, and it does now to think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that <clears throat> that those those poor people were being deported to Mexico, but they were people. Right. They yes. You know, you can't just give them a label and say that's all they were. Yep. They were, they not were cattle. people. They were mothers and fathers and, and sons and daughters, you know. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the kind of thing that was not coming from rock and roll for me. Uh, I wasn't getting it and doing all that stuff. So, yeah. sorry, go ahead, Jim. Yeah. You know, I, I was born and raised back east in Tennessee and Kentucky, and and there was an element of bluegrass music that I was really into. I played bluegrass, had a band for years. 
uh, still do actually. Uh, and a, a lot of times there was a spiritual, if I can use that word in kind of a generic way, there were spiritual and emotional songs about, uh, well, I went to see Keith Whitley once in Louisville, Kentucky in a little kind of uh, private show. Uh, and he did a song called Little Bessie, and it was about a childhood disease taking the life of a little girl. And, uh, and uh, while Whitley was singing that song, there were, there were tears running down his cheek. And uh, sure. I, I think in, in music, there is that element of expertise in playing instruments and beautiful voices singing impressively. Uh, but but I like it when there's something a lot deeper than that. And this, I'm really glad that we added this as a part of today. Yeah. You know, Thad, we're yeah. going to go ahead and, and, and play some Swamp Water here from yes. uh, back in the, uh, I guess, I think this was 1970, Ooh Wee, California. Can you elaborate on that song a little bit for us before we play it? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, that was our second album, our RCA album. And it just kind of, uh, it's semi-biographical for Gibb. Uh, he was the main writer mm. uh, in that he started in, in uh, he started his career as a Cajun fiddler in Louisiana and worked his way through Memphis and through Texas and ended up in California. <laughs> and, uh, but then we all wanted to go back to the, the country music mecca, you might say, of Nashville. And so uh, Nashville was in the song, but California is where we all seem to land and where we finally were able to flourish in the music business. So that's a, that's a thumbnail, I guess, of that song. Right. We're right. going to go ahead and play it. This is uh, Ooh Wee, California and the Swamp Water.
All right, Thad. Uh, we're just about out of time, and I'm looking at my list here, and uh, I'm looking at at least two to three other podcasts <laughs> that, <laughs> that I want to talk to you about, my friend, yeah. because uh, I got I got to meet I got to just meet Chris Hillman, but I'll bet you uh, you knew him uh, pretty good. Vern Gosden and the Hillman, the you know my my bluegrass stuff. Uh, I see a lot of those California guys. Uh, of course, Clarence White. You know, when I was looking at the musicians that played on the Arlo Guthrie uh, recordings, I saw my bluegrass heroes playing on the on that project. Man, from Roger Bush. Sure. Roger Bush was the bass player for the Dillards. Uh, yeah. Doug, Doug Dillard was playing on there. Uh, Brian Berlin, the fiddle player. Uh, sure. Just uh, you, you want to uh, you want to make some comment about all that? Yeah. Uh, well, obviously Arla had great respect for those players. Um, he um, he was signed by uh, Warner Brothers Records, and so he did uh, most of his recording in L.A. So he was able to pull those kind of players in on his albums. I was on a couple of his albums. Uh, one of them entitled The Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys, and uh, I forget the other one, maybe Amigo. Um, but, yeah, it was, uh, you know, his way of uh, uh, melding together his folk origins with uh, his respect for, for the uh, the country and bluegrass musicians. I, and, did, uh, did you ever get to meet, like, Clarence White before he was tragically killed in a accident? Oh, oh I sure I, I sure did. Uh we we spent a lot of time together. We we opened for the birds somewhat, and we we traveled together. We hung together. Uh, we'd get, get together at Clarence's house in in uh, Palmdale, and uh, we'd go to Roger McGuinn's house and stuff. We'd you know, went with the birds to all their concerts when they were in L.A. and <clears throat> we spent a lot of time together. We were we became very good friends, Clarence and I. And uh, and and I was a little nervous at first because it was his brother that I replaced when I joined Ron Staff's band and I thought he would hold it against me, but he, he didn't at all. He, he, he was, he was fine with it. The, the one question was the best. Yeah. The question I've got for you, Thad, did you, did you ever have to pinch yourself occasionally and think, man, I'm hanging with you these know, guys, you know, I mean, are these girls, you know, it, it's funny you say that because I've often thought, and I often have told people that through at least the first half of my career, maybe longer, uh, I always felt that I was a phony, a fraud, a fake, and that somebody was going to discover me and, and say, hey, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. It was, I think it was that version of a pinching myself. Absolutely. I felt that way, underconfident for for years and years. I just wow. didn't think I belonged there, yeah. but somehow I fooled those people into, into hiring me and keeping me around. And, of course, I didn't mean it that way. I meant just, just the <laughs> fact that you were there, you know, in that era of music is incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, the names that that uh, can that, that we've already talked about. It's just incredible that the people that you've known and yeah. and uh, played yeah. with. Oh, and, absolutely. Like I started at the beginning, I, I mentioned to you that I felt that a whole lot of the thing was luck for me. That, that the timing was just luck for me. That I landed there when all of those uh, influences were coming together. Yeah. Uh, we didn't even get into the Flying Breeder Brothers yet because I ended up playing in that band uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, with uh, one incarnation after yeah. these other bands were done. You know, and I, I'm trying to remember, but back when I was uh, a disc jockey, uh, we actually played uh, little Flying Burrito Brothers on some country stations that I worked at. 
And uh, this would have been late 70s, probably uh, early 80s. I think there was a reinsurgence of that. Is that correct? Is that how that went? Or Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was with them in the uh, in the late 70s. And then uh, I went back to work with uh, with Mac Davis and uh, because the burritos were not working steadily enough mm-hmm. and Mac was. Yeah. Uh, so but the burritos went on together. Uh, Gib Gilbo and John Beeland and Sneaky Pete carried the name, but they slightly changed it to just Burrito Brothers and they dropped the flying. Yep. I remember uh, so that. So they kept it going for a while. Right. Yeah. It might even been for legal reasons, too. You mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. Possibility, yes. You know, maybe uh, in the intro to the next uh, episode with you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the story I was expecting for this one was you with Colonel Parker and Ricky Nelson riding in the elevator. But um, <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's for, that's, that's for number two one. right there. Yeah. That's definitely for number two. But it's been... Uh, I, I used are you serious? You want to do some more at some point down the road? Oh, we, will, we will definitely absolutely. do that, Absolutely. We will definitely do another one. This absolutely. is great. There's more information to be had, I can yeah. tell. Yeah. <laughs> Have we mentioned James Burton? We haven't mentioned I don't him. think we talked about that yet. So uh, That's a big. That's no. another big name. Just name dropping left yeah. and right here. Yeah. <laughs> he, I know. They're hitting the floor all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but we, it's been awesome, my brother. It has. It really has. And Thad, we... We I give are, you a great big well. Yeah, we are out of time, but we want to play out. We want to play another Swamp Water uh, song out. We're going to play uh, uh, a big uh, Bayou is is what we're going to play. Right. Uh, anything about that song? Did you uh, was that also wrote by Gib or was that? Yes, it, yes, it was, and and that was kind of our signature song, and it, it seemed to be the most popular one we had through most of our our, uh, our life as Swamp Water. Uh, even to the point where it was covered by uh, Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones, and then Rod Stewart heard Ronnie's, and he cut it, too. Yep. So, well, that, and that's so what that was, was a nice little... Uh, but, Thad, once again, uh, thank you for being on the big show with us. Yes. And uh, we will definitely... Thank get, you, gentlemen. Thank you. You bet. We will definitely do another one. We're going to ease on out of here with Swamp Water and Big Bayou. Where the fish jump in deep 
We've had the pleasure here on The Big Show of having a lot of great guests like Tony Booth, Doug Boggs, Amber Digby, Randy Lindley, Anita Campbell, Wayne Animal Turner, Alan Howie, Kevin Carter. You'll find these episodes on all major podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. And remember to follow us and share with everybody that you know. We'll see y'all on another one. And we will see y'all on another one. Adios, folks. Thanks for listening to The Big Show with Andy Gallo and Country Jim. This has been a Unicap Media presentation.